Thank you, gentlemen. Let's just continue that expression of worship, song, and the word into the word of God. Take your Bible with me and open up Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Indeed, this morning, we arrive at this chapter, Romans 8. And as such, we have reached a summit. After climbing for seven chapters in this rich New Testament letter, we are now, beloved, entering rarefied air. And that is certainly not to lessen, of course, our view of the 65 other books and 15 other chapters, certainly not that. Each book, chapter, and verse has its own place, has its own inspiration, its own treasure in the Bible. But in this letter, and with this chapter you have open before you, Romans 8, we have reached a peak. It's true, in fact, it's fair to say, given what we're about to embark on in this chapter, that we've reached a summit of summits, an Everest in the Himalayas, if you will. If the book of Romans indeed contains many peaks, and beloved, have we not seen many peaks in this study? There's been many. Then Romans 8 is the grand peak. And to set the table for this chapter, let us understand that Romans 8 has, throughout history, been regarded as such. That's how it's been treated. I read varied comments this week weighing in on the importance of this chapter. There is no end of commentary on Romans 8, let me tell you. Some of the comments were sappy and understated, calling Romans 8 an inspirational highlight. And others were over the top, calling this chapter the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. J.I. Packer, employing the Everest analogy, has many helpful insights on the chapter open in front of us. In his book, Knowing God, if you recall, that's the book we gave to you last Father's Day. In his book, Knowing God, he provides not only a fitting introduction to this chapter, but also one that reminds us that we dare not try just land on the summit, grab a helicopter, a parachute, skip the ascent, and just get to the top. He reminds us we can't do that. The ascent from one to seven is crucial. And beloved, we have made that climb this past year, have we not? That's how we got here. Let me read actually from Packer and Knowing God as we ready our hearts for this chapter. I'll quote him directly. He says this, Here the Everest principle operates. You will not penetrate the secret of Romans 8 by studying the chapter on its own. The way into Romans 8 is through Romans 1 to 7. And the impact of Romans 8 upon you will reflect what it has cost you to come to terms with what those chapters say. This is so good. Only if you have come to know yourself as a lost and helpless sinner, chapters 1 to 3, and with Abraham to trust the divine promise that seems too good to be true in your case, the promise of acceptance because Jesus, your covenant head, died and rose, chapters 4 and 5. Only if, as a new creature in Christ, you've committed yourself to total holiness and then found in yourself that the flesh is at war with the Spirit so that you live in contradiction 
never fully achieving the good you purposed nor avoiding all the evil you renounced. Chapters 6 and 7. Only if, on top of this, losses and crosses are upon you, illness, strain, accident, shock, disappointment, unfair treatment. See Romans 8, 18 to 23, 35 to 39. Only if and only then will Romans 8 yield up its full riches and make its great power known to you. End quote. Hear that. Only then, only then, says Packer, after climbing through Romans 1 through 7, only then, and only that way, with that work, only then, Westmount, will then this chapter yield up riches, full riches. In other words, you cannot, as broader evangelicalism loves to do, you cannot cherry pick the Bible. You can't cherry pick Romans 8 and expect to get full return on your gems. You, you can't do that. You cannot read verses like Romans 8.1 in isolation when you're wrestling with guilt and expect it to melt away. You cannot read that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus without understanding why that's true in Romans 1-7. to You cannot read verses like this in 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You cannot read that on its own and expect full assurance like a child to a father. You just can't. You can't read passages such as Romans 8, 18 to 25 in their immensity. You can't read this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. How can we understand that treasure without the truths of Romans 5, the truths of Romans 7? How can we understand that? How can we understand that? Then, of course, passages that we just take for granted, passages like this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Where is the weight and value of that without Romans 1-7? to And then, of course, this. You've heard this often, I know. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, that sounds good, doesn't it? And it will be a parachute verse with all of its thin help if you cherry-pick Romans 8. And those words will be meaningless. These passages have their full force in the full book. Riches abound, beloved, but let us make sure, let us be sure, beloved, we ascribe to them their proper place and value. And I pray, after we're done, you will never look at Romans 8 the same again, even if we're very familiar with it. And so, saints, our mining expedition begins this morning. We have burrowed through seven chapters, and as you would expect, we cannot possibly get very far today. Just a few verses in this rich, rich treasure. And we will not get to the end of it before the summer in a necessary pause. Yes, we will open up Romans 8 this month. We will do that. We will get into it. But then, of course, we'll take a few weeks to digest just the beginning. We turn our attention to a very necessary other series. And then we return this fall to cap the full excavation of this grand and glorious chapter. That's where we're going. And Westmount, Romans 8, listen, is not merely deep theology. It is. And for some of you, maybe you're thinking, well, this is the stuff of theologians. They can understand those verses well. That's not what Romans 8 is. Listen, I pray that we will feel this together when we're done. After spelunking Romans 1 to 7, I pray this will be true. Romans 8 will be sheer joy. Sheer joy. And you will say, I have never seen that before. So we must not rush. Beloved, have we not put in the hard work in Romans? We have put in the hard work. Let's now reap the reward of this grand chapter. Let's now turn our attention to Romans 8.1. I'm going to read the first four verses. Romans 8, 1 to 4. Look at it with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, what do we say in light of these opening verses and your living word? Help us to see them. Help us to receive them. Help us to plant them deep and and live out the reality of being not guilty in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You look at this chapter and sweep from no condemnation in verse 1 right through to no separation from God's love. All of it in the last verse, no condemnation, no separation, all of it where? Where's the domain of that? In Christ. No condemnation in Christ, no separation from God's love in Christ. That's 1 to 39. The truth unveiled in this chapter then, book ended, 
intentionally is found only where? In Christ. Beloved, this is life in Christ. And we will see that in all its fullness here in Romans 8. From what Christ gives us in salvation to what he has left us with in the Spirit for sanctification, right through to the Father's love guaranteed in Christ to glorification. Yes, this is like a Trinitarian manifesto to the riches only found in Jesus. And that's it. The key to everything in life. Not even close to an overstatement. The key to everything in life is bound up in two simple words. In Christ. That's it. That's it. And here we will stand back and take in this massive canvas. What does it mean then to be in Christ? And what are the implications of such a life? Such are the questions. That's the blessed road ahead of us, Westmount. In this chapter, it all culminates. So let's begin that journey with a look at the chapter's opening two verses in our first point. No condemnation in Christ. No condemnation in Christ. Back to verse 1. We can never read a verse like this enough. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at that therefore. And that therefore, as therefore always does, looks back. However, it does not look back just to the last few verses of chapter 7. This therefore reaches further back. And you say, how do you know that? Well, look at the word condemnation. It's stated there. It connects us back to what chapter where we heard that word before? Yes, chapter 5. Condemnation mentioned twice before in chapter 5, verses 16 and verses 18. Recall, condemnation is legal guilt. It's a guilty verdict. The guilt that we inherited in Adam. In Adam, in the garden, remember our old head. And of course, that condemnation was not just inherited in Adam. It is our status naturally with corrupted DNA from the womb. As we've seen, we reject God. Thus, condemnation in our body, in our frame. So, condemnation, not just reaching back to chapter 5, but also chapter 3. The reality that no one is righteous. In other words, no one is not guilty. All are under sin. Chapter 3, 9, and 10. And the fact that none seeks after God and none does good connects us with the condemnation we learned about as this letter opened. Do you remember that? Romans 1. Where the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. One eighteen. That is, look at it, all under condemnation, practically, by volition, by choice. Yes, each one of us condemned by our own hands. We're condemned thus by nature, by practice, and by inheritance. As such, beloved, we know this, the guilty verdict is just. So that condemnation is laid out in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 5. And it's laid out and it's covering all that we've learned so far. Now back to 8, verse 1. In light of all we've learned, this, there is therefore now no condemnation, which in light of what we've learned on its own, one could say, in light of nature, inheritance, and practice, one could say, well, how is that? Thrice condemned, how does anyone take that away? 
keep reading, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we say that's how. That's how. And this too is not new. It's glorious, and it always will be, I pray for you. But it's not new as we've studied in Romans 4, 5, and 6. This is Christ and what he's done. Yes, we've been introduced to the remedy for condemnation already. Have we not? We've been introduced to that. Recall with me Romans 5, verse 1. You know this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. To be justified by faith is to be declared not guilty before God. Imagine, full pardon before God. Thrice condemned, but to be declared not guilty with full pardon. But this full pardon, this new standing before God, listen, this is important, this is what we've covered, it's not because of our work. Not at all. And as a result of Christ's work and our repentance, our turn from our own work, as Jerry reminded us this morning, and we gather together to remember, it's the gathering of all those that declare openly at the table and in the marketplace, it's not about my work. In fact, I have nothing to submit to my entrance into eternity. In fact, I've ruined it. It's all in Christ. Only those. Christ's work, our repentance, response to that work, is what's in view. And subsequently, our belief in Christ puts us in Christ. Our faith in Christ puts us in Christ. That brings peace, and that's what it means to be in Christ. And that peace, that pardon, that not guilty, that justification, beloved, is sure. I think so often we're so wrought with uncertainties in this life, we can lose the grand certainty that you have in Jesus. And you need that certainty day to day. It's sure. And not only is it sure, like a treasure to put in Fort Knox and just say, I've got it, good. It's to be worked out and lived out. And think about this. If we've learned nothing over the past few years, that's how you can truly live. Security is the foundation for healthy living, is it not? Well, you're secure eternally. Hence, chapter 6, 7, and 8, Paul turns to our sanctification, our living out salvation. And we covered these in the past two chapters to begin. The reality that sin's power is broken, but the presence of sin is not. So Paul reminds you, Christian, you're no longer a slave to sin, but you are now a slave to righteousness. Chapter 6, verse 18. In Christ, yes, you have a new master. Yet even with new lordship over you, believer, listen, what did we cover? It's still a struggle, isn't it? Chapter 7. Because although you are out from under Adam, you still have a piece of Adam. You still carry around a piece of Adam, a remnant of unredeemed humanness, your flesh. And as you now desire God's law deep within you, you feel the futility and you know the struggle. And what is more in that struggle, even though you're pardoned and free, you still have your moments where you feel very much guilty. Is that not true? The struggle takes you there. Feeling your sin, lamenting over it, all that angst, which in one sense is needed and right in your approach to sin, to see it the way God does, but we don't stay there, not when we repent. And that cry, that struggle, remember, in the wake of the sin struggle and the new waves of guilt, we can cause ourselves to say this over and over, 
At least in one sense, we initially do this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul, as he turns now to chapter 8, realizes in wake of that cry, it's time now for a fresh reminder. Yes, Christian, us. Chapter 8, verse 1 again, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. There is now, look at it, now, that's present, that's here and now. In Christ, Christian, if that's you, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation in Christ. You may not feel it, but it is true. And here's where we can say, aren't you glad your feelings aren't the final arbiter on things? How many times have you felt condemned and guilty? But listen, if you're in Christ, you're not. You say, but I don't feel it. And it's my joy to proclaim to you, but you are forgiven and free. If you've repented and placed faith and trust in Christ, you are not condemned. Paul will now take a moment to remind and map that to our sanctification. Look at verse 2. He says this, continuing, For the law of the Spirit of life, he's going to set two laws against each other. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So much familiar language here especially with law. Remember, Paul is talking about our not guilty verdict lived out, chapter 6 through 8. As such, he connects that legal language now to our manner of living. And here again, we cannot lose sight of what we've been learning. The advent of Christ brought an administration change with respect to the law. We've covered this. Those with faith in Yahweh, dead to the Mosaic law now, but not dead to all law, In fact, speaking of law, and this is chapter 7, we have a new relationship to it. Yahweh fearers have a new relationship now to law. That's the key. Here, Paul resorts again to the law principle language in verse 2. We saw this before in 721, and he resorts to it here again. For the law of the spirit of life, not the Mosaic law, but we see this here, but the greater law. Here's the principle. Recall chapter 7, verse 6, the new way of the spirit. Not the old way of the written code. The transcendent law of God, the standard that is God himself, the law that he places on the inside of those that are his. So no condemnation in Christ means we've been set free by that new law. You see that? Not onto no law, but to a new law. And the embodiment of that new law, the fulfillment himself, is Jesus Christ. Recall Chapter 7, verse 4 with me. Paul said, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through what? The body of Christ. The body of Christ. Through Christ, then, the law of sin and death. There's your other law principle. That law is dead. And again, this doesn't mean that old law in and of itself was bad or evil. When we think of the Mosaic law particularly. It simply means that through that law came knowledge of sin. Romans 3, verse 20. Through that law came an increase of sin. Romans 5, verse 20. And through that law, an opportunity for sin. Romans 7, verse 8. No condemnation in Christ means new law in Christ. See that? No condemnation means new law in Christ. The new law of the spirit of life means that by virtue of union with Jesus, who gives us the spirit, we no longer live under the power of sin, but through the power of Christ. And that power sets us free in Christ to live out Christ. 
That's life in Christ, and such a life lived from justification to glorification. Is again, that's the focus of these middle chapters. Listen, the already and the not yet. Now, with no condemnation in Christ, that truth for the believer cemented, and before Paul moves on to ongoing matters of sanctification, the apostle ensures here that we're clear on the no part of the no condemnation. Yes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but stressing the no doesn't mean there is no condemnation, period. What are we saying here? Well, it doesn't mean, no condemnation doesn't mean it was just magically erased or it evaporated. Well, look at that. It's gone. In our just-make-it-go-away sensibilities, we need to be very careful here as we read God's Word and not import that magic eraser sentiment onto the text, which we're prone to do, aren't we? Well, it just goes away, and if I turn away, then it'll be gone. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but listen, beloved, there was still condemnation. There was. And that's our next point. Condemnation in Christ. Let's continue in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Listen. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Believer, how is there no condemnation for us? Well, it didn't evaporate into mist. It transferred from us onto Christ. Have you thought about that? Christ took your condemnation. Your condemnation that you justly earned was taken on by Jesus in his humanity, in his flesh. That's the condemnation in Christ. It's yours and mine and ours. Sin condemned in the flesh of Jesus, says verse 3. Perfect Christ took it on and bore the penalty of sin, the condemnation due to you and me, Christian. Beloved, our due condemnation, listen, did not just disappear. It cannot Why? Is God a just God? Does he uphold righteousness? Do you want him to uphold righteousness? Not just at the eschaton, but every day. Yes, and praise God, he's perfect in his justice, perfect in his righteousness. And so it is upheld. And listen, here it is. Sin, every single sin, must be dealt with. The question is, who deals with it? Who deals with it? Our condemnation, praise God, beloved, if we can say it this way, became Christ's condemnation in a judicial exchange. Now, I trust you recognize we've covered that too also in Romans 5, that transfer, humanity transfer, that condemnation transfer as well. However, for us to live in right relationship to law today, believer, so important here. For us to live rightly in right relationship to law today, Paul recognizes we need to fully understand lawfully why we can. And this continues to be just of paramount importance as we variously misunderstand our sanctification. There's no end of perversions to our sanctification today. 
Let's look closely then at verse 3. And as we do, listen, let's not forget the struggle. Let's not lose sight of the immediate context from chapter 7. This is why we need to hear this. Why? Context, chapter 7, because we have indwelling sin and flesh waging war against our indwelling spirit. And that struggle might cloud our ability to think rightly about our ability. Remember last week, for sure, we seek to do what is right. But when we do, what happens? Evil lies close at hand. Chapter 7, verse 21. But that does not mean we're incapable then, with that law principle, it doesn't mean we're incapable of living lawfully under God. Let's not give up so easy, because we shouldn't and won't. Because it's a struggle doesn't mean we give up. And because it's a struggle doesn't mean we can't. In fact, the reason why it is a struggle now is that our eyes see clearly God's law. Is that not true? How many of us, Christian, can make this confession, wow, I was so blind, and now I see. It's so clear. And our heart actually, for the first time, desires, chapter 7, 18, and delights, chapter 7, verse 22, in God's law now. This is not something on that day we would say, well, yeah, you know what, then I, I, I finally put my life together and I delight and let me in. No, now, with no condemnation, now we delight and desire God. So while we may struggle, let's be clear on why we are able to overcome it. One, sanctification is not about what you are doing in the grandest sense. It's about what God has already done. Sanctification in one grand sense is not about what you are doing. I mean, there are implications for that, but it's about what God has already done. We need to start here. Look at verse 3. Paul says, look at the opening words, for God has done. This may sound like justification 101 stuff, but it's actually sanctification 101. Beloved, God alone justifies in Christ. But recall, our justification is the first step in our sanctification which is the ongoing process where God sets us apart onto him more and more. Certainly, we're called to obey as we live out our sanctification. But we cannot do that until God first does the work. We, we can't do it without him working initially and foundationally. And here we see that right in this verse. So what we're reminded of here is that present ability is based and rooted in past action. You see that? Present ability is rooted in past action. God has already done something. And what is that? It's almost like review. Number two, defeated the power of the law, which in our flesh we could never do. See that? Verse three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Beloved, from the garden, we were crippled with respect to the law. Remember that? Law might have had some life potency before Eve ate that fruit, and we can only wonder. But for certain, after the fall, the flesh was weakened against law, as Paul says. In Adam, our nature was corrupted and our ability to obey and fulfill, listen, was impaired after the fall. And so the law could never liberate us, could it? No matter how good it is, and listen, the law is good, and that's the conundrum. The law is good, but it can't liberate. But this is the illusion of many turning to the law to save them. Do you know some of those that take refuge in the law? I'm going to to be okay. Why? Because I'm doing good things. I'm a law-abiding citizen, so I'm going to be okay. But you can't take refuge in law. 
says Paul, says the word of God. You, because the law doesn't save. You can't turn to the law for your salvation. You can't think that the law is savior of your righteousness. You can't do enough law to be saved. And why do we say that? Because of what we've learned in this study. Listen to chapter 3, verse 20 again. What have we learned? For by works of the law, what? No human being will be justified in his sight. That's not unclear. Law is no savior, beloved. Listen to me. Law is no savior. Weakened by the flesh, it is impotent. But God has done, here's the glory, what the law cannot do. And what did God do? End of verse 3. Sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Our sanctification is thus enabled also by, thirdly, we would say this, the sent son. Fully God, yet incarnate. That word means in flesh. As fully man, fully God, sent in flesh. Westmount, once again, God does not operate with magic wands and erasers. That's not the way that he does things. A just God cannot just wink at our sin and say, you know what, let's just forget about those things. Can we agree to that? Let's just forget it. Our sin to be reconciled to God must be dealt with. Our sin has brought right and just condemnation. So if we're to be cleared, listen, if we are to be cleared cosmically, if we are to be pardoned in the heavenlies, that penalty must be paid actually. And along with that, the penalty, listen, must be paid rightly and appropriately. You know, it's, it's striking with this principle. We all want justice today, don't we? We just don't want it for ourselves. We want sin to be paid for and dealt with, just not for me. But here's the good news. Yes, even for you and me, sinner, it is dealt with. Christ does something with that. And here we see human beings need salvation. They have sin and they need saving. And for redemption, their Savior, listen, must be human. He must be for an appropriate salvation. And the problem there, of course, is there's no human being that can save. What does Psalm 49.7 say? Truly what? No man can ransom another or give God the price of his life. That's a problem. Because every man from Adam, what have we learned, is incapable of fulfilling the law, aren't they? They can't do it. Thus, a fitting Savior for humanity would have to be one like us and one not like us, right? And so Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is, although born of woman from the line of Adam, Luke 3, was also conceived by the Holy Spirit, the seed directly from God, Luke 1. Thus, Christ is the God-man. Fully man like us, brothers and sisters, and fully God not like us. Westmount, this is confirmed elsewhere. Listen to Philippians 2. It says this, verse 5, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but listen, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There it is. Being born in the likeness of men. Now hang on to that word for a moment. Here, Galatians 4. Not only born in the likeness of men, listen to this, Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Same language from Romans. Born of woman, but note also, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Amazing. So God sent his son, born under the law, not just in the likeness of men. Now back to Romans 8. Hear this, verse 3 again. But son sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Sinful flesh. See that? Which brings us to another reality that enables our sanctification. Fourthly, we would say this. God sent his son not just in flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. The words of God here are so precise and thus so instructive. Christ came in flesh, incarnate, as we just learned, and that was to redeem our flesh. However, Christ could not come by the way of the flesh we inherit. Right? Why? Our flesh is stained with sin. It's corrupt. And 1 John 1, 15, or 5 tells us, in him there's no darkness at all. Yet to redeem our flesh, Christ had to take on our flesh in some way and then offer it. Well, here in Romans 8, 3, we learn Christ took on the likeness. See that word? The likeness of sinful flesh. This language conveys exactly the what and how a perfect God took on for imperfect man. Simply Westmount, this is identity. This is identity. This is the very identity we learned back in Romans 5. This is Christ, our new head, our new representative, standing now for us. And to do that, Christ had to take on not just general flesh, but sinful flesh. If he was going to redeem us. And he did that while living a perfect life in his flesh. Thus, perfection wrapped in imperfection. Which, by the way, isn't that a picture of the little Christ that would follow him? In what sense? What a picture. And in that likeness of sinful flesh was condemnation, our condemnation, which Christ took on. And thus God, look at the verse, condemned sin in his son's flesh, his body. That is the condemnation in Christ. It did not just go away. Guilt that was not his, but ours, he bore. Christian, we gave that to him. We gave Christ the condemnation that he bears for us. And Christ bore our just condemnation in his perfect body. And because he did, not only is our justification enabled, but here it is, our sanctification as well. Before we get carried away on that, let's not miss the purpose before we close. And we'll close with this, verse 4. In order that, always a purpose statement, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Look with me. God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, bearing our condemnation for what purpose, says the verse? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. 
Remember, Christian, this is an exchange. Christ did not just die for your sins, period. Christ took on your condemnation and gave you what? His righteousness. And that's not just an exchange. That's an incredible exchange, isn't it? His righteousness. Christ took your guilty and said, I'll take that. And here's my not guilty to placard over your head. I'll take your guilty and you take my not guilty. And see that it is because it is Christ's not guilty that you're really pardoned. It is not. We can't say this enough. It is not because of your good works. It's only because of Christ's work. That is good, but there's even more here. We have to say this before we close, or we'd be betraying the text. Let's not check out early and miss this. Look at verse 4. This is not just righteous law requirement fulfilled in us because of Jesus. It is that, and we stand not guilty in law fulfilled because we're in Christ. All of that, beloved, all of that. But look at the end of verse 4. And here's where we're reminded of the context. Paul has already covered our justification, right? Remember, that's not his purpose here, to keep rehashing justification. He gives us the result of our justification, and it's found at the end of verse 4. Look at it, that us Christians, look at it with me, would what? Walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see that? That's a purpose, isn't it? Our daily walk, our sanctification, justification, listen, produces spirit walking every time. Or let me say it this way. Authentic justification always produces spirit walking every time. It must. It must. So Christ gives us his not guilty so that we just get out of hell free. Christ gives us his not guilty so that we would walk not guilty. Do you see that? There it is. We are not guilty in position so that in practice we live not guilty. Each day. Say it another way, beloved. The believer's obedience, their sanctification, has its foundation in the work of Christ on the cross. The believer's obedience, your sanctification, has its foundation in the work of Christ on the cross. Beloved, again, what have we learned? You are not saved to self. It's not enough to claim Jesus and feel like you'll be okay after death. That's not real faith. That's not real faith. What have we learned in chapter 6? The genuine born-again believer recognizes they've received a slave transfer. It was one sin, but now it's righteousness. Saved onto good works, Ephesians 2 verse 10, prepared beforehand. Yes, you were saved to serve God, a slave to righteousness. Now, beloved, that is life in Christ. That is the introduction to this chapter. This is what Paul is talking about. Now here, Paul indeed, Paul has set us up in these first four verses for what we're going to cover in the many verses that are going to follow in chapter 8. And it is subsequently, and this is where we'll be next week, subsequently life in the Spirit. Christ did the work, 
And it gives way now to life in the Spirit. Again, God willing, that will be our coverage next week. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, what a joy that there is no condemnation for us in Christ. Beloved, what a joy. And Father, we, as we consider that together, we recognize that that condemnation went on Christ. What we are due, he took on. And now we can stand not guilty, not because of our practice, but his perfection. Oh, Father, please let us live in light of that truth. For all of us here that rightly call you Savior and Lord, may that be true of us today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.